Hello, and I hope you've had a very good Christmas break. Welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Getting Brexit to getting boosted from supply chains to standards, 2021 has been an extraordinary year for government, for politics and, well, for pretty much everyone. And next year promises to be more of the same. There are going to be some big elections, notably in Northern Ireland, we know that for sure. Queen will celebrate her Platinum Jubilee. Government will celebrate finally publishing the levelling up white paper, probably. Coronavirus is not over, Brexit isn't done, and the Prime Minister still has a party to placate and a government to rejuvenate. So this is going to be a podcast in two parts. We're going to look back to some of the standout moments of the last year, and then we'll be doing our best crystal ball gazing to pick out what we should be looking out for in the 12 months ahead. Joining me in this virtual studio, with a mince pie perhaps to hand, are three of the IFG's finest. First, Alex Thomas, who leads our work on the civil service. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bronwyn. And we got two senior fellows, Kath Adden and Jill Rutter. They're with me too. Hi, all. Hello, Bronwyn. All right. Hello, everybody. Great. Did you all have a good Christmas? Yes. Yes, full of lateral flow Christmas cheer. Jill, you've been hankering after going to Australia. Well, actually, at the moment, I'm quite relieved that I was saved the agony of going to the cricket with my Australian friends who sent me a picture from themselves and the uh, members at the MCG yesterday, because it would have just been so awful to be there today. But the weather does look great. It's the first Boxing Day test I've missed since uh, since I first went in 1994. But wow. um, I think wow. I'm going to have to keep going. <laughs> Well, you're, well, you're right. On this particular year, it has been grim, and it's going to be, it's going to be warm here as well. Apparently, the warm winds from the south coming up. But that's all for the new year. Let's begin with the year just gone. So much has happened; it's hard to remember what happened this year or last. Kath, I wonder if you can start us off just moving on the prime minister and his party. Obviously, a, a big year for him, a big two months for him. Just start with just looking back over this two months. Would he be in the trouble he's in now? All kinds of stuff blown up, standards, rebellions, all this. If he hadn't tried to save Owen Patterson, former MP, that's that's a very good question. I, I do you know what? I think that was more indicative of the problems that he's had coming rather than the root cause of all of it all. Because actually, I was thinking over this and sort of what were the the big moments and and was struck by what I'm calling the sort of tale of two speeches. And the first was the Conservative conference back in the 6th of October. And the second was this speech to the CBI on the 22nd of November. So only, you know, a little over a month apart, and yet very different sort of reception of both of those speeches, because the the one at the party conference, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of policy detail. There were a lot of slogans. There was the vaccine was lauded, leveling up and uniting the UK was was emphasised. It was quite a rambling speech, the usual sort of boosterism and so forth. But he was at a party conference where he had his own hall to deliver the speech. All the talk was about how he could possibly go on and on and on and about his unique ability to withstand any crisis, is how one journalist put it. And then you come to the one on the CBI, similarly quite rambling. He obviously had a stumble over losing pages. You had the Peppa Pig interjection. It was roundly criticised by business leaders, obviously by his own Conservative MPs. And it just shows how much things have changed since then. And in the middle of that, yes, was this Owen Patterson vote on the 3rd of November. So suddenly you went from a prime minister, you know, doing the same thing effectively, but in one context, completely ascendant and everyone thought, well, you know, can anything stop him? 
And then in the second one, you had a, a journalist actually asking him, is everything okay? So it really showed just how much uh, everyone's perception of Boris Johnson had changed in that period and how the magic just didn't seem to be working anymore. That captures it really well. And just as the year goes by, let's just remember on the Peppa Pig thing, which mm. has landed, as they say with people, that this was not an improvisation or in the sense that he repeated it a couple of times later that day. Um, take us back to the reshuffle, big reshuffle. Previous cabinet was very much his cabinet. Is this one more independent? Is it stronger? What do you make of it? Well, no. I mean, when we first looked at it of the first day or so, there were some really big uh, changes, obviously, Gavin Williamson being sacked from education. You also had uh, Dominic Raab being moved from the Foreign Office to Justice Secretary, but getting a bit of a title bump that one that's quite meaningless about Deputy Prime Minister. And obviously, we'll, we'll talk about that. That was all about the Afghanistan debacle from earlier in the summer. So on first level, it seemed like he'd made some major moves, but actually a lot of the cabinet was staying intact. In but then when you started to look at the lower levels, the Treasury had almost a complete change of, of staff. So it really looked like what Johnson was trying to do was bring in his own people at junior levels and perhaps clip the wings a little bit of some of those that he saw as tall poppies around him. Although obviously Liz Truss got a boost of going to the Foreign Office. So it's a bit of a mixed bag there. But yes, doing that 15th of September and then going into the Conservative Party conference, it still did seem that, you know, Boris Johnson was in charge of the party and had control about where things were going to go in the coming months. And and then you had this succession, you had the budget and the spending review. You also, just before that CBI conference, had the integrated rail plan, which was leaked to the press, and you had almost a week's worth of bad headlines, which again caused uproar, especially amongst uh, Northern Conservative MPs. So you started to see not only these splits in the Conservative Party and the things they wanted, but also this repeated questioning of Number 10's ability to actually handle crises when they hit, or instead escalate them out of you know, out of proportion of where they should have been and create even more problems for themselves. Yes. And he's now six, eight points behind Labour in the polls, maybe a bit more, almost complete reversal from uh, September when he was clearly ahead. Is that reversible yeah. for him? Uh, it's difficult to tell at this stage because some of this obviously is um, midterm blue. Some of it we can't tell because if you go back to the beginning of the year, obviously we started the year with a, a lockdown and it's only really then in sort of March, May, you, you know, you, you have the impact of the vaccines. It's been a year of vaccines effectively. But yes, there was that, that what we were calling the vaccine boost to his, his popularity. But as the, the year went on, it was starting to dip anyway. But it was really these last scandals in the last couple of months and then the by-election losses where you're starting to see Labour having what looks like more of a solid lead because they're also getting better ratings for handling of the economy, you know, Starmer for better PM. So these are more of the things that suggest it's not just a, a short-term reaction against Boris Johnson, the figure, but actually a questioning of the government more fundamentally and perhaps more positive look at Labour because, you know, it's, it's taken time for Starmer to develop his own persona and his own brand. I think there's still a lot of question marks in people's minds about how much this will last to the next election. Obviously, as we've seen from this year, you know, a, a lot can happen in a, in a political year. 
all of the above from Kath, but it's a, it's a reminder of the importance of context in politics uh, as well. If we if we needed one, I mean, I'm, I'm struck by how you know journalists, commentators, others have uh, sort of at some point over the course of the autumn and early winter flipped and started to sort of hunt as a pack. I wonder if the Christmas party stories would have been quite so damaging and quite so focused on by the media and others if the narrative hadn't already started to shift, which speaks to Johnson's main political job early in the new year, which is trying to use a sort of what may or may not, we don't know yet, be successful judgments around um, the Omicron restrictions or lack of uh, restrictions, if he can use that to, to, to reset the narrative. But it's a huge job to do. The, the only other point I was going to mention, which um, which Kath didn't quite touch on, is the anger of MPs and Conservative backbenchers seems p- to me to be particularly focused on the walking them up the hill and down again problem, yeah. which was illustrated by the Owen Patterson affair. They can weather quite a lot. And after all, it is very hard to get rid of a Prime Minister. Johnson is still in quite a strong position. But if he keeps asking his backbenchers to vote for things that he then subsequently U-turns on, that's putting a black mark against all of their names in the voting uh, records uh, and causes real kind of focused uh, anger on the backbenches. Joe, I wanted to ask you, do you think we've still got the ability to run the government's response to coronavirus, which is the biggest thing on its plate? It's quite interesting because everybody's now having to see this through this political calculation, aren't they? On the one hand, the uh, what the scientists are saying, warning of caution, because in a sense that's what scientists will usually do, versus can he get it through? Because he's clearly alienated a very substantial tranche of his backbenchers. And as Kath was saying, that this has raised huge questions about competence in number 10 and their ability. The Prime Minister does look as though he's slightly the prisoner of his party. I think it's very interesting. I was just going to ask Alex, you know, with his experience back in the Cabinet Office, about whether he thinks Number 10 uh, were dealt a very bad hand on parties, assuming parties there were, or just handled it ferociously badly, because it seemed to me that this was an example of really terrible handling from the number 10 operation of not doing what the Department for Education and the Treasury did when stories about their open quotation marks, gatherings, closed quotation marks came out and tried to close it down straight away. Number 10 went straight into denial mode and have made a story that I thought was a bit of a nothing story that might have gone on for a couple of days and they should have just said sorry into something that's you know, hanging over the Prime Minister into the new year with Sue Gray's investigation to come out. Yeah, I, I agree on the poor handling, although it's interesting to note, uh, however absurd it seems that there've even been stories that, you know, Christmas party gate might be the thing that brings down Boris Johnson. I mean, that's that's mind boggling on, on, on one level. It's the Johnson playbook. It's worked catastrophically badly in the context of Christmas parties, but it's exactly the method that has seen him through so far, which is deny, refuse to acknowledge, refuse to apologise. So what's interesting about this, I think, is it's the end the end for the moment of the success of the Johnson playbook of never apologise, never explain. Let's, let's turn to our second subject, which is Brexit and its aftermath. Jill, I wonder if you could take us into this. A year ago, the Brexit deal was signed. Lord Frost was triumphant. Twelve long months later, uh, Lord Frost is gone. What, where, do, where are we in this? Where are we? Well, we're 
in a situation where, despite having landed that big trade and cooperation agreement this time last year, we were all sitting around reading to say, what does this mean? Uh, we're still coping with some of the fallout. The most notable is clearly that the Northern Ireland Protocol is not settled yet, kicked into the new year. And a big question mark about whether Liz Truss, who Boris Johnson has now put in charge of that, is there to make a quick settlement that Lord Frost didn't want to make or will decide instead to burnish her leadership credentials by playing tough on Northern Ireland and seeing that. So that's a big question mark. Meanwhile, I think what's fair to say is that most of the predictions that the trade and cooperation agreement was a very thin deal that would lead to loads of new trade barriers and that uh, British business would discover a whole heap of new red tape was being landed on it, have actually come to pass. So I think there are quite a lot of quite smug economists around there saying, I told you so, we've had the Office for Budget Responsibility uh, in its uh, confirming in its forecast attached to the December, uh, to the October budget that the scarring effect of Brexit uh, at 4% long term would be twice the impact of COVID. That was pre-Omicron COVID, but, um, but I think that's quite interesting that COVID is something you can recover from. Brexit, a long-run dampening effect. So we're still there. There's been no real moves, I think, to deepen the relationship. Uh, possibilities in the TCA, which some hope for that we'd add on more things. Um, but we've also not seen that much divergence by the UK. That was another thing where Lord Frost had just made a rather tub-thumping speech in the run-up to his departure, setting out you know plans to review residual EU law that we'd, what was called retained EU law, we transferred over to the UK statute book. And to start off from his mission, I think, as his team saw it, to change the mindset of Whitehall and seize the opportunities of Brexit. But he's left now. That's now gone to the Foreign Office, which is an extraordinarily weird place to try and run what is fundamentally a very big domestic agenda from. And do you think they'll run it, I'm going to say more successfully, but obviously there's a lot packed into that word. What do you think they will do with the Northern Ireland Protocol and the relationship with France? Don't know. I think we're in for a sort of, you know, tricky few months of the relationship with France. I think Northern Ireland, it really, really comes down to ultimately what does the Prime Minister want and what does the Prime Minister think his party wants? And that goes back a bit to the position we're in on coronavirus as well. The Prime Minister will have to, again, be looking at his back benches and his backbenches like red meat on Brexit. The sort of people who've rebelled over lockdown, quite a lot of them are those who want the purest, purest form of Brexit. And that means dumping the Northern Ireland Protocol. Think they were told by Dominic Cummings uh, when they voted for it first time round that it would only be temporary and they would get rid of it quite quickly thereafter. So I think it's a, he's in a really difficult position on where to land that because the economy really needs stability no good for long-term investment and things like that if people think that even the trade and cooperation agreement, even that sort of guarantee of tariff-free trade, which is more or less all it really gave us, it can't be taken for granted. So it's all all very difficult. We don't know quite where that will be. I think we're in for a fractious few months with France because just as throwing Brexit red meat to the back benches helps Boris Johnson sometimes here, throwing buns at the UK might help President Macron, his very aggressive Europe minister, Clement Bonne and others. Um, and 
you know, with the emergence of Valérie Pécresse as quite a sort of plausible challenger on the right, President Macron may be in for more than a, more of a fight than he thought he was. So he might be tempted to dial up the rhetoric, though very noticeably on the fishing licenses dispute. France was very frustrated because the EU failed to row in behind them on that. Alex, do you think Lord Frost's approach was very much his or was he following the Prime Minister's direction? Well, it it always, as with all these questions, it always comes back to the Prime Minister. But of course, the advantage a Prime Minister has is they can jettison somebody whose uh, approach they might no longer agree with or might have changed their mind. Now, of course, it was Lord Frost who decided to resign himself. um, But it is interesting that he chose to resign at this time and that it gives Johnson the opportunity to either double down or to reset relations, as Jill was saying. I do think you know Boris Johnson uh, has not famously been a details person. And I think quite a lot of the uh, approach and tone and uh, details of the negotiation came from Lord Frost and his uh, team in the Cabinet Office. So I'd expect things to, to change. I completely agree with Jill that the non sort of foreign policy aspects of this, it's odd for a Whitehall watch to, to see those um, being run out of the Foreign Office. So that's definitely uh, one to watch. It comes back to Johnson. And if it becomes in his interest to uh, amp up the conflict, then we can expect him to do so. If it's uh, more uh, that he, he needs a deal uh, and, and needs to dial things down, then that's what he'll do. I suspect it will be more of the latter. Yeah. And Kath, this point about it being run from the Foreign Office, we're not completely comfortable place at the moment. Does it? Is that a boost for the Foreign Office or is it really a strain? Well, I mean, this is one of these questions that you go back to 2016 and uh, when Theresa May took over and and created the Department for Exiting the EU. We criticised that time. Jill criticised that. And, you know, that had always been the question mark is what is the Foreign Office's role now in the biggest issue of foreign policy? So now suddenly they've got it back. But as Jill says, at a time at which this is very much a domestic policy area, uh, it has all of these foreign policy connotations. And the other one, which we'll get to talking about if we talk about US midterms, is the relationship with America and what pressure Biden has put on Boris Johnson recently. So there are definitely foreign policy elements to it. But the key issue here is also about whether they've got the staff who are now steeped in this, because throughout Brexit, we've seen Whitehall build up capable staff able to focus on issues, whether it's new deal, no deal planning, or whether or not it's, you know, running the Brexit negotiations. And then you have, you know, a movement of staff and you get, you lose, start to lose all of that institutional memory. So I think another question mark is actually who's gone over with trust? Who are the people around her who understand the issues have been involved from the start? Or as it yet again, sort of blank slate, people starting again and reinventing the wheel? Because I think that when you're talking about something where there's so many tricky, intricate issues. And then the other aspect of this is obviously the role of the Northern Ireland office, because uh, Northern Ireland's got elections coming this year. So it's a huge existential issue now for the DUP. So how much are they going to make sure that understanding of Northern Ireland is brought into all of these conversations? Or is it just going to be a chance for Liz Truss to assert her dominance? Well, we'll come on to some of those points, including Northern Ireland. But let's just stay with matters to do with the Foreign Office for our final topic of the year that is closing now, um, which is Afghanistan. And Alex, I wondered if if you could take us into this. It was a mess, wasn't it? The exit, what it said about the relations with the US and the spectacle of 20 years gone by with really the Taliban back in power. Who is to blame? 
plenty of blame to go round, uh, isn't there? Though it's worth uh, noting that in a narrow sense, there was a logistical success, which comes down to the Ministry of Defence and aspects of the Foreign Office, uh, just at getting you know vast numbers of people out under incredibly difficult circumstances. But yes, more broadly, plenty of uh, difficulties. Uh, I mean, you could say the blame goes back to Donald Trump, who originally decided uh, uh, on a timetable for US troops uh, to leave Afghanistan. Uh, Joe Biden had his part in that. But looking at the UK response, uh, criticism of Dominic Raab for uh, being on holiday and for not responding quickly enough to some of the uh, immediate uh, decisions that needed to be made, criticism of the permanent secretary at the Foreign Office for also being on holiday and not racing back and for other management uh, of the Foreign Office. Um, it does seem to show a Foreign Office that's not that might be equipped uh, for crises like uh, a hurricane in a Caribbean island or, 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 or something similar, but not for a broader cross-government crisis response such as was demanded here. Interesting, and it's worth a read. We got the testimony from this um, whistleblower who was in the crisis response centre. Um, that was quite a difficult read, not least because it was clear if that testimony is right, just how on his own he'd been and how unsupported actually by aspects of the, the Foreign Office there. We don't know the, the, the truth of that, but very striking that it, it was an organisation under immense strain that hadn't anticipated the demands that were going to be placed on it by the, um, the Afghan, Afghan evacuation. What does it say about global Britain? It says that I'm not sure about the, the Afghanistan evacuation in particular, because uh, that was a, a, a narrower point. I think the Questions around global Britain are more about the overall uh, strategic concept of it. What does it actually mean? I mean, it's, it's easy to talk about it, and I'm not sure it'd be interesting to see if Liz Truss does put some more flesh on this. I'm not sure we've seen from her predecessors what global Britain means beyond the kind of sloganeering. Foreign policy does involve making strategic choices about where our interests lie in the world, um, about how we can execute them. And it involves dealing with the world as it is rather than as we'd like it to be. Um, so I think that is um, one of the meatiest challenges for Truss as she gets into as she gets into this job. And, to, and didn't Johnson, he made some, some calls to Biden to try and push it a, just a few weeks to give them that little bit extra time, but that came to, to naught. So uh, there were, t- there was, we were discussing it at the time, I remember, of just like, does Johnson have any influence over Biden on this stuff or, or, or not? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, th- I think it shows. Uh, does it tell us anything new? I mean, since Suez, we've been talking about um, a, a, about the limits of um, special relationship and uh, and the UK's role in relation to the US. It comes back to that sort of dealing with the world as it is. Biden had some very clear interests to, mistakenly or otherwise, get out of Afghanistan quickly. The it seems to have damaged him politically as well, interestingly, although at the time there was a sense in the US that it was a sacrifice worth making in order to get out of Afghanistan. But you have to uh, look at these things in a fairly hard-headed way. And I think it's always unlikely that a British prime minister in the context we've got at the moment is going to be able to assert themselves over an American president, particularly in the febrile American context. Yeah, but I agree with that. That's been building for a long time. Let's just take in some of the other big set pieces of this year. Jill, COP26, was it the triumph the prime minister wanted it to be? No, it wasn't uh, the tr- quite the triumph the Prime Minister wanted it to be, but nor was it a sort of failure because they did manage to conclude the Glasgow Pact. They managed at least on paper to claim that um, limiting temperature rise to under 
1.5 degrees was still alive, though open quotation marks on life support, close quotation marks, according to COP President Alok Sharma. But again, there, I think at that and to an extent at the sort of G7, you saw a bit of the UK had these roles as the sort of presidency, but actually the big plays were being done elsewhere. I mean, the sort of big deal in the last week of the COP was uh, the US-China agreement. You know, since then, we've seen this US-EU cooperation agreement on defence and foreign policy of security. So I think one of the things that's a bit difficult for us being outside these sort of big blocks now is that we have to find a way of uh, making our way in the world if we're going to assert global Britain. And this year, we've had a leg up by having simultaneously the G7 presidency and the presidency of the COP. We have still COP president next year. We've got more work to do there. But it's quite difficult to do it as a sort of, you know, medium-sized G7 power, not one of the really, really big players. And I think the government's going to struggle, maybe needs to prioritise, and it's going to struggle even more because, as Alex said, I think some of the legacy of the last few years, not least the sort of cuts, the the merger with DFID, the aid cuts and things like that, is that uh, Liz Truss has inherited a rather demoralised department that's a bit rudderless and the Afghanistan debacle won't have helped that at all. That is the one of the all-time difficult mergers uh, of the Foreign Office and the Department for International Development. Very, very different cultures and the Department uh, for International Development containing a lot of people who just want to do development as their professional life. They don't want to be switched around. Uh, Kath, what about the G7, the other big set piece? Should have been to the Prime Minister's advantage. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, or a super spreader event, as it was also known. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of these ones, isn't it? The the journalists and, uh, you know, all the, the world politics uh, sort of watchers going to Cornwall to focus on, on what they might achieve. I think, again, there, the big question marks were about relationship. You know, this was Boris Johnson's chance to develop a relationship with, with Joe Biden. I completely agree with what Alex says about you know, age-old relationships. But the point is still that prime ministers seek it out. And you've got the usual pictures, you've got lots of criticisms of all of the, the different meals that they were having, the sort of gathering around on the beach and so forth at a time at which um, COVID levels were still quite spreading quite highly. Whether or not it binds them together, I think, to be honest, this year's G7 is going to be even more of a test because we're already seeing Russia asserting themselves over Ukraine, uh, big question marks in January about what will happen there. And then there's this big diplomatic boycott happening of the Winter Olympics, which are happening in China. So I think it's going to be a bigger test this year. But last year's was very much about relationship building. Yes, uh, although I think, I mean, one of the criticisms of the Prime Minister at the G7, while saying that he did, he did by and large, um, pull, it, pull it all off, was that he focused so hard on getting Joe Biden and America on side of the North and Ireland um, protocol that he didn't mention Afghanistan, and then that 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 blew up a couple of months later. But it did go by, uh, not not too bad for the Prime Minister. On that note, we're going to turn and look at the year ahead, 2022. Lots of things coming that we know about, and that's even before the surprises, which the last couple of years have delivered in um, enormous quantities. Let's start with local elections. Alex, um, local devolved elections in May. What's happening and how significant are they? 
pretty significant. I think it's uh, there are local elections uh, across England, Wales and uh, Scotland, and those will be important, not least for measuring the political health of the Prime Minister and the Conservative Party, as we were talking about earlier. There's a fairly broad set of elections across England, which uh, are the ones that will help determine that, and particularly in London, where there'll be a full set of, of local elections there. So those will be important if, and it still seems slightly unbelievable, if Boris Johnson is still in office then or hasn't faced a a, a challenge, then that will become a big political moment for him and is obviously also important in terms of the um, control of those uh, local authorities. But as as Kath and you alluded to earlier, I think far more uh, importantly, important is the Northern Ireland election, which is happening in the spring. The DUP, led by uh, Geoffrey Donaldson now, has had a pretty torrid few years. They had a disastrous leadership election that didn't really work. They've made all sorts of errors around uh, Brexit, which Jill can talk to far more uh, eloquently than I, than I can. There's every chance in those elections that Sinn Féin might come first. So you would have a Sinn Féin first minister in Northern Ireland. You'd then have probably have a DUP deputy first minister, which effectively the first and deputy first ministers are designed uh, to have the same power. So there wouldn't be that much shift in the sort of technical uh, leadership and and, um, uh, execution of uh, power in Northern Ireland. But it would be a huge, huge symbolic shock to unionism in Northern Ireland. So that's one to watch really, really closely. To the point, Jill, where you might not actually get a government forming at all if the, if the DUP went through this, um, was confronted with a shock that Alex has just described? We don't know. I mean, we keep on hearing sabre-rattling from the DUP that the, if the Northern Ireland Protocol is not denounced uh, uh, pretty quickly and the government triggers Article 16, that they will collapse the executive. But we also sort of know that Geoffrey Donaldson is going to make a return to Northern Ireland politics, wants to be... First Minister, uh, probably doesn't want to be Deputy First Minister to Michelle O'Neill. So that's a sort of area of difficulty. Northern Ireland is always teetering on this knife edge that um, if one of the two main parties decides it's going to walk out of the executive, then the executive collapses. Um, So it's very, very difficult to tell. But as Alex says, this is going to be a sort of dry run for the 2024 vote on the protocol. So we'll be looking to see do the unionists manage to rally round to ensure that they do the DUP does stay the largest party, which means they get their uh, get the first minister's slot? Do people you know might find the Ulster unionists more acceptable, but might decide to vote DUP tactically in order to push them into first position? That's always possible that they do on that side. Um, how well does Alliance do? I think that's really interesting. But the Alliance is the sort of you know. Uh, cross-community party, which has been one of the big beneficiaries, if you like, of the last few years. They've done increasingly well there. So I think it's a really interestingly very unstable time. So I think the next five months in Northern Ireland are going to be um, well worth watching, but also very worrying. And some pressure on the government to get the Northern Ireland Protocol sorted before that. Well, I think it's difficult because if the government sorts it, maybe if the government does some deal, then the DUP will denounce it, but uh, but not collapse the executive, which would precipitate, potentially precipitate, precipitate earlier elections. But we'll have to see, it'll give the DUP a position of being able to say, we wouldn't have done this, no, we've been let down, which some might say is a position the DUP is quite familiar with and um, quite feels quite comfortable with being in. Yeah, and Kath, what, what's the knock-on effect at Westminster? 
Uh, well, of the local elections more generally, I mean, as Alex says, um, it's really it's one of these sort of bellwethers for as we were talking earlier about how meaningful the, the latest poll ratings are. But watching polls week by week is very much an inside Westminster bubble activity. But, you, you know, as we saw with by-elections this year, uh, it starts to then cut through when you get some big moments that, um, you know, the public can actually go and go to the polls and show their uh, distaste for the government if they want or their support for another party. Um, and also, as Alex was saying, some of these in London are going to be quite meaningful because there are certain boroughs that have been, you know, relatively staunchly conservative. There's um, the Prime Minister's own constituency is in the borough of Hillingdon, which will be up for a vote. So people will be watching that to see what his majority, you know, whether we can tell anything from that. The government will obviously be able to say, oh, it's, you know, it's our equivalent of midterms, it's people's uh, protest votes, it, it doesn't mean anything. But the other thing is the impact on the party more generally, because the Conservative Party is a party of constituency associations and Tory councillors. So it will affect them if they're starting to feel that actually the government, the general direction of Boris Johnson's government isn't the conservatism that they support, and it's affecting them at the polls, um, you know, where it matters for them at, at local government. There's always been this tension between the, the Conservative Party in Westminster and its sort of grassroots effectively. So it may bring that into sharper relief. And I think the government's, government's going to do probably badly anyway, because it's coming off the 2017 is this not the sort of rerun of the 2017 elections? Yeah. Where they did incredibly well. And that's, after all, what persuaded Theresa May to go for her election. And in any case, uh, the government's coming off the high watermark of 2017 when it did really, really well at the time when we all thought that Theresa May was heading for a thumping majority in the election that she just already called. So uh, so I think even with quite normal results, the government would mm. be looking for some reversals. Okay, well, let's stick with number 10 for our second topic of the year ahead. Kath, some big questions about how Boris Johnson runs number 10. Where next for the row on standards? Well, we've got two big inquiries that we're sort of watching for. One, Jill's already talked about the Christmas parties and the Cabinet Office had been investigating what Christmas parties actually occurred and why it was that the Prime Minister uh, had originally declared he had no knowledge of any such things. And that's been delayed. Sue Gray, uh, who used to be the person who who did all of these and has since moved over to the Department for Leveling Up the Union, has come back to, to carry out this investigation after the Cabinet Secretary had to stand down because it turned out he was at one of them. So if we're waiting to see what happens with that. It didn't report before Christmas as we thought it might. And there's also question marks about the Prime Minister's advisor or ministerial interest, the person who investigates breaches of the ministerial code, Lord Guy, because his inquiry into the funding of the number 11 flat, the, the Boris Johnson's flat and the wallpaper, um, he'd cleared the prime minister but uh, over the, the funding of this loan. But then the Electoral Commission turned up with some WhatsApps that they were querying that Lord Geit hadn't apparently seen. And after a few sort of newspaper headlines that Geit might resign, it all went very, very quiet. You know, we get the impression that Geit has asked to see the evidence. Uh, he hasn't perhaps reopened the inquiry. The Prime Minister gets a say over that. Uh, but there's still the possibility that he throws a hand grenade into things that could cascade out of control, where he either decides to resign or he comes out and says, actually, my previous inquiry 
wasn't accurate. Um, it, we could hear nothing. He could just sort of carry on. But I think it's it's again posing questions that we've kept raising about whether or not the current standard systems arises. And then also with this prime minister, there's a good chance that something new will happen. Um, and we will see a repetition of the same handling of it that, as Alex and Jill were saying earlier, we kept seeing over the course of 2021. So uh, so there's a lot of pressure in this sort of early new year. I'm sure the prime minister will be hoping that it all goes a bit quieter and goes away. I think when uh, MPs come back, some of his own MPs will have the same questions as the opposition. Do you think a leadership challenge is likely? I think the moment has passed. There was a lot of noise uh, a couple of weeks before Christmas when you had this sort of, you know, collision of uh, different issues happening at the same time, COVID votes, the Christmas parties and and the like. 54 letters have to be written in for a leadership challenge. That's still quite a lot, although you did have obviously 100 Conservatives rebelling over COVID restrictions, but, but still 54 saying they've got no confidence. There usually has to be some kind of organisation behind it um, that, you know, enough of the party have decided now is the time for a leadership challenge. But they, he then, you know, it would have to be over 180 MPs to, to vote no confidence. And that seems a very, very high threshold. So I think at the moment, the idea of a leadership challenge has slightly faded away, but it's not out of the realms of possibility. And I think it entirely comes down to how the government hit the ground running when they come back, their relationship with, with the party and whether anything changes, particularly in and around number 10 and in their handling of the party. So, you know, we might even even see a, a preemptive reshuffle, a change of chief whip or or some notable changes at, at number 10 that the Prime Minister tries to, to do. But then, as Alex says, the Johnson playbook is, uh, you know, never explain, never apologise. So perhaps he'll, he'll just want to see how long he can go. Well, I want to come on to our final topic, which is the cost of living. Jill, and I wonder if you could just give us your thoughts on this. Rishi Sunak, who up to now seems to have had a good pandemic, has had a tricky end to the year. He had to be, come back from California to come up with a support package for the hospitality industry as Plan B began to bite. We've got energy costs rocketing up. We've got, we've got inflation. What are the kind of problems this represents for him? Well, his basic problem is that and what to do about all of this, I think, because uh, Treasury hasn't had to grapple with inflation at this level for really quite a long time, sort of slightly out with the memory of most of the incredibly young Treasury officials. But not clear that he's got that many tools. I mean, you can hope that inflation is transient. Remember that that was what people thought the Bank of England's initial view now, I think, changed a bit was that this was a temporary blip upwards. I mean, his main uh, main tool he seems to be doing is to try and damp down on public sector wage increases, which I think could be a future source of difficulty when he's saying, you know, nurses, doctors, you know, military, we love you, but we're actually going to ask you to take a very substantial real terms cut in pay. He's got his tax increases hitting in April. So I think he's going to have a really, really, really bad early part of the year when prices are still rising. With any luck for him, some things will start dropping out of the index as you move into mid-year and inflation might then start to come down relatively quickly. He's got his tax hikes kicking in in April as those national insurance changes kick in. So people are going to feel quite a lot worse off. So I think he's going to be looking at that. I mean, of course, the success he's had is on employment. Um, that's a 
that's actually one of the source of his problems because that's why he's seeing some of these sort of dislocations in the labour market with shortages popping up because actually vacancies are running at a very high level and he's got a very tight labour market to deal with. But I think this is probably having lots of you know head scratching going on in the Treasury about what exactly can we do? Labour's calling for a temporary VAT cut on energy to reduce household bills. That, of course, will cost him revenue in the longer term. And we know he thinks he's got a revenue problem. Can he really bear down more on public spending? We saw some, you know, not very seasonal briefing from the Treasury on Christmas Day in the FT that they were coming for more civil service job cuts. Uh, That's quite good headlines. It's not very substantial money. So I think this is going to be a really difficult year for the Treasury to navigate through. I think what they'll be hoping is that they can sort of, you know, hold on, that inflation doesn't turn into one of those sort of wage inflation spirals that we used to see in the 1970s, particularly if you're accompanied by very lacklustre growth. And we've had some revisions down of the growth forecasts. Uh, we've had Richard Hughes from the Office for Budget Responsibility saying, well, our forecast didn't assume Omicron, so they may be coming out on the slightly too optimistic side. So all, all of that, you've described very well, a lot of difficulty for him. Alex, are we going to see this levelling up white paper? And where, where does that fit into the difficulties Jill has just been describing about shortage of money? Yeah, well, it, it may be a way. I mean, we're promised it sort of early in the new year. It's quite hard to see how it's going to offer many solutions. It might help start to provide a bit more of a story and a plan for how areas that have been, quote unquote, left behind might be assisted. Um, but it's hard to see how, firstly, how any white paper can uh, affect these sort of very tangible things, you know, energy bills and uh, inflation that, that Jill was talking about. And also how any uh, ideas that are in there are, are uh, help in the short term. So there's some talk about sort of, you know, very short term activities, whether it's money or other things to support towns. But actually, if you're going to address the sorts of problems the government says it wants to address in levelling up, that's a long term uh, objective. And you need to, uh, you're not going to see political dividends over the course of one or two years. It's certainly not a way for the Treasury or anyone else to help deal with uh, cost of living uh, questions. I also don't know how much levelling up as a sort of phrase and idea yet resonates with um, the electorate. So the government needs to find a way to describe this as a motivating uh, uh, plan for, for it as a government. But I don't think it's going to solve the cost of living stuff. And Kath, just just finally, I mean, this is a real sort of ideological difference, isn't it, between uh, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister? It's, it's not the first time there's, there's tension, um, some say a healthy tension between these two offices. But the, the real difference about whether you spend a lot or you don't. Yeah, I mean, uh, we had obviously a budget and spending review back in the, the autumn, and it was described, I think, as the Rishi Sunak's budget and Boris Johnson's spending review. Um, and it, it has been a story we've seen throughout the year that the the Prime Minister wanting more and more to sort of dole out the cash where possible and and the Chancellor having to find ways, whilst also putting in his speech that he doesn't believe that government is a solution for everything and that he does actually believe in, in small government. I think the key thing is what has changed now. And one of the things I noted in the sort of two weeks before Christmas, especially on Omicron, was you started to get signs that the cabinet were asserting themselves. It was no longer the prime minister making decisions, but it was the cabinet doing so. So the question is now how powerful a voice Rishi Sunak has, and is he actually able to stand up to the prime minister and hold fast on on some of these things when he has a different view? Or is is Boris Johnson able to assert himself? And that, that 
power relationship and how that plays out with the rest of the cabinet. It's something that you only see in sort of leaks out to the newspaper and so forth. But uh, it does tell us a lot about what has changed within Whitehall. Well, with that note, we're going to have to leave it for this episode of Inside Briefing. But I hope that's given you a real sense of just how many things are coming down the track at us this year and that's only the ones that we can see right now at the tail end of 2021 so my huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Jill Rutter and Alex Thomas thank you all for listening at home if you've liked this podcast then do check out our sister podcast IFG Live for all the ones that we've recorded over the year keep an eye on our website instituteforgovernment.org.uk for everything we've got coming up lots of exciting reports lots of events to come And as we've been talking about, so much for us to be thinking about and discussing and making sense of next year. Because one prediction we can make is that 2022 is going to be as packed as 2021. See you then.